0: This is Solve It For Kids.
1: Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the dean of all things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It For Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek,
0: Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Just doing this introduction, we are already behind, Jennifer, because today's (laughs) guest is that busy and she does that many things in space education. Oh, I know, she is amazing. And what we're gonna talk
1: about is so cool. Absolutely. What problem are we solving today?
0: What would it be like to live on Mars?
1: What would it be like to live on Mars? Oh my gosh, I want to know. This is going to be an amazing episode. Who is our guest today, Jeff?
0: Our guest today is just the right person to be talking to about this. She is the one and only Janet Ivy Doonsing, creator and CEO of Janet's Planet... American Astronautical Society's 2022 recipient of the Sally K. Ride Excellence in Education Award. And she is the Director of Education for, yep, Explore Mars. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Janet. Thank you guys so
2: much. Delighted to be here with both of you.
1: Oh, we are so excited to have you.
2: Yes, we are. Especially
1: because we're gonna talk about Mars, the red (laughs) planet. Yay! But I like to start out with: did you always as a kid love to look at the stars and think about living on Mars, maybe?
2: You know, I always loved space, and this is where I love to give a shout-out to Miss Ernestine Yarbrough-Jones. My fifth grade teacher, <laughs> yeah, nineteen seventy eight, and she and Miss Carolyn Davis in their bell bottoms <laughs> brought uh, a telescope. Jeff, you'll love this. Brought their telescope out to the playground. Now remember, Excellent. this is rural West Tennessee, so there was not a lot of light pollution. Wow. Uh, Miss Ernestine yarborough Jones, beautiful African American lady. Miss Carolyn Davis, beautiful redhead, and these two ladies were showing me Cassiopeia. And I I just remember looking at Saturn and Mars for the first time through a telescope and going, oh, what are these two ladies? So really, I'd always loved science. I always loved the solar system. But Miss Ernestine Yarbrough-Jones made it come alive. She assigned the planet Saturn in fifth grade as we went through the solar system, probably why my logo looks a bit like Saturn. But I think (laughs) from just that moment of engagement with You know, it was the year, kind of like around the year Star Wars came out, proof of how I remember that. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) But I always like to credit her because, yeah, I always loved looking up. I had my Aunt Pat, who believed in aliens, so I would stand (laughs) up and we would look for UFOs with her. So that was fun. So yeah, so there was a bit of Martian there. But for my love of the solar system, it really goes back to fifth grade and my amazing teacher. That's so awesome.
0: That's wonderful, and I really love that you remember some of the things that you actually looked at in those Mm -hmm. very early days. So knowing you and being a fan, I obviously know your bio and know that you didn't go straight through school and have space and planets as a full-time career. (laughs) What I want, we're going to use that for homework because we could get lost in your other career as well, (laughs) for listeners, what I would like to ask you is how did you come back around to space and planets and Mars as a career?
2: Yeah, so from that Bachelor's of Music and Theater degree at Belmont (laughs) how did I end up anybody wanting me in the space community? The thing is, is like I graduated from college, literally had like, we were on the pitch sheets for Mercury Records. I was in a group called Summer Rose and Ivy. Wow. We would have been before the Dixie Chicks. They had just signed Shania Twain (laughs) and Toby Keith. Oh and my no gosh, in the room with Harold Shed, and it was like, we were doing demos and stuff, and then Mercury and Polygram merged, and the record deal went away. But at the time, you know, kind of like, you know, in the gig economy, yes. as ever, I had this job at the local theme park, Opryland USA in Nashville, Tennessee, okay. doing a show called the Opryland Kids Club. I was 25, feeling like a 10-year-old, <laughs> With kids that were like, you know, anywhere from like eight to 12 years old. And right. so like we were four, performing four times a day. And basically I did that thing from 92 through 97. And during that time, I thought, my God, I the deal went away. Who cares? I love working with kids. This is amazing. Yes. I looked around right? and I was like, what can I do? And I was like, how about science and space? Going back to that, that sort yes. of like All understanding right. those, you know, constellations and stuff. And you know I'm you guys might have heard of Interplanet Janet she's a galaxy girl in that whole kind of schoolhouse I life. have yes but I couldn't be that because right somebody else owned it so a parent yes. one of the kids I performed with is like well let's take a look let's look do a trademark search <laughs> nice. planet. and I was like oh, I can have my own planet yes so again I didn't even know what I was going to do guys except when I looked around Mid to late nineties, there was nothing other than Bill Nye, the science guy in Beekman's world, which I love yes. those, yes. but basically I was like, you know what? I'm planting the flag on Janet's planet. Cause where are the female science role models? Nice. I love that portion of like, if I was going to perform and do kind of children's entertainment or work with kids in some fashion, I thought, let's be smart while we do it. And let's yes. like, sit, let's with an eye out there to outer spaces Our you know, that interconnectivity, that star stuff we are, that, you know, iron in our blood, the calcium in our teeth, the carbon in our DNA. We are yeah. star But <gasps> look back, there's that sweet little ball, that blue ball that, <laughs> that holds everything we love and is easier to live on than Mars. Maybe we can do something with that. And so literally, I'm going to say with a couple of nickels and some duct tape is how we started. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and I, you know, sometimes I pinch myself because again, I just want to encourage anybody. Nobody's going to ask me for the, like, you know, five-year plan or like business <laughs> plan, except follow those little guideposts along the way that kind yeah. of push you in a bit of a direction, be willing to at least, you know, kind of like be curious and see where they lead. I, Truly can't imagine not being Janet of Janet's planet. It's been a fun, fun ride for the last 20
1: years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. People ask me too, how did you become a children's author? And I'm like, uh the door just opened and I happened to just walk right through it. And it's been, you know, amazing. And now I'm, you know, we have this amazing podcast. But okay, what I want to ask you, because what we're going to talk about is what would it be like to live on Mars? And I know everybody is so excited because, right, like it's like people get ahead. Like we haven't, you know, Artemis 2 hasn't quite happened yet. So we haven't gone around the moon. We haven't landed on the moon again. And people are like, oh, no, no, no. Mars is where it's at. So what can you tell us about Mars?
2: Well, the argument for a lot of those people is that, hey, we've been to the moon and let's head on out. Let's let's get there and do it and not not that we're going to waste time. We are going to learn how to live and thrive. Right. And if you start to get into conversations with people, it's like, there are things that will work on the moon that may or may not work on Mars because the difference of no atmosphere on the moon, you're talking about a very thin layer on Mars. But when we get there and hopefully again, for a long time, the goalpost had 2033 on it. Right. I think that it will definitely be by 2039, 2045. I'm saying that no later than 2045. That is like, my my thing is like, if it's not 2033, I think somebody's going to go, we're tired of waiting. And by 2045, we're going to see people actually land on Mars. But I'm saying our research stations are going to be on the surface, but we are not. We're going to live down in lava caves because we're going to have to live underground To like really kind of mitigate that radiation, mitigate those like 100 degree temperature differences. It might be 70 or 80 degrees at the equator during the day, but by nightfall, it's going to be minus 70. So figure out ways to live in within kind of like these lava tubes. Now, a fantastic architect named Alfredo Munoz has designed something. You should go and look this up on YouTube. It's called NUWA City, N-U-W-A It's by Abibu Studios and he's already designed this. So he's wanting to kind of put windows in mountains and sort of like kind of live in almost kind of like the sides and interior of a mountain. So then you could kind of see the sunlight. You might benefit from some of that, but it's beautiful designs. But again, we're going to have to live under and inside a closed loop system because of radiation, because of the temperature. And because of the perchlorates and all that dust. I mean, if you see some of the designs NASA has done, they even have this one thing where you're in your spacesuit, you go out, and then you basically sit down and you lean, you back out of it, and you leave your spacesuit outside. Outside. Because again, if we're doing some comparison, the lunar regolith is as sharp as diamonds. Yes. So that's gonna be nobody wants to breathe that in. So the same thing if we start getting all of that stuff that's on Mars inside our habitat, and we know those perchlorates can be very harmful to, say, the human thyroid Mm. and part of this beautiful human endocrine system. So if one thing goes wrong, ergo the other thing. So. It's going to be fabulous, and I'm sure that it will be full of places where we can innovate. And that's for anybody listening. It's like, what could you innovate that could <laughs> live on Mars, right? Yeah. I've told my grandkids, they're like, where are you gonna be? Like when you're older, are you gonna are you still gonna live in Tennessee? And I'm like, no, your grandma's gonna be on Mars. And so they're gonna <laughs> ask you, what happened to your
1: grandma? And I'm like, not Mars. That that was my question. My question was gonna be, are you willing to go to Mars? Isn't that right now what a two year trip, a year
2: and a half? How long is the trip there? Well, it'd be six to nine months with the right kind. I mean, you know, oh, okay. Kind that's, of space that's, long like, that's long enough. That's long enough. But you know, it's like, why rush home when it's taken that long? You know, it's not like not like my granddad who would like go anywhere and be the longest, you know, driving trip ever, be there for like 36 hours and be ready to head back. You know, I think my answer is yes. It's like because they have discovered that older ladies might be the people to go because we are would be at that point in life after a certain Important moment in an older lady's life. Yes. Some things are done that we would not be as susceptible to some of those effects of radiation. Huh. So we wouldn't have to worry about so much of the cancer. So I always think about when people go, Jan, we got so many problems here on Earth. Why on Earth would we think about going to Mars? We need to solve the things here. And I, you know, I always like to, and I'm sure, you know, Jeff and Jennifer, both, I mean, your new book and Space Cares and everything like that, we think about. But if we plan on going there and in the process of innovating for Mars and we figure out the spacesuit that's impervious to radiation, we just solve something here for cancer patients or maybe gotten rid of it altogether here on planet Earth. Or if we solve food scarcity, I mean, even where I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and maybe where you guys live, there are food deserts. Kids come to school to eat. They haven't eaten before they left. They make sure they have lunch. They make sure they have a snack. And so if we solve food scarcity and how to grow it in the most harsh of environments, you know, again, I think of all of those benefits and the things that the space program has already provided. I do have to ask you, I want to ask you both and see what you think. Will we have to be vegetarian if we go to Mars? (laughs) Or would you be willing to be vegetarian to go to Um, Mars? You're already a vegetarian.
0: My hunch is that anybody willing to say, yes, I'll go live on Mars, will be willing to check the box. Yes, I'll be willing to. And just with the amount of meat substitutes there already are here on Earth, I think those meat substitutes will eventually get sent along as well so that you will be having a plant-based cheeseburger. So you have (laughs) that cheeseburger because it's also not just about Janet, I'm going to send this one back to you. It's not just about figuring out all of the specifics scientifically of the radiation and where's, you know, drinking water and having enough food and having a habitat and what Mm -hmm. science are we doing? But the psychology of we are the first humans that don't live on planet Earth. We now live on planet Mars. And taking some things with us, like a cheeseburger, (laughs) helps us with, no, we're still the human race. We've been moving around our own planet for X thousands of years. Now we're just moving between planets as well.
1: Yeah. So I am very much a carnivore. So we'll have to see about that. But I have to say, I visited NASA's food lab in Johnson Space Center when I was there, and they are coming with some really creative and good tasting food. So I realized that long term, that's not great because you can't carry all that food necessarily with you and how they're going to do all that. But I feel like they could be creative, kind of like Jeff said, and come up with, you know, meat substitutes. As long as the protein levels are what they need to be, I mean, you're in Mars. Right? right. So you're going to have to give something up to get to Mars.
2: <laughs> but you know what's amazing? If you talk to somebody like uh, Scott Bryson at Orbital Farm, he's talking about creating these closed loop systems and basically growing food in cellular bioreactors. So you could take some cells from a cow put it in your old cellular bioreactor, and potentially you have, you know, milk or cheese or hamburger, right? The same thing, there's another company called Finless Fish that has learned how to extract cells from a tuna, grow it in a petri dish, and by the time you get to somewhere, you have a tuna steak, And a piece of fish that has never, ever swam in the ocean. And this they're actually creating it not only for space travel, but for how much mercury and other things in our oceans. So think of this. We may someday eat fish that has never, ever once even swam in water. There are other companies that are 3D printing food. We can now like imagine that. It's like Hmm. a guy named Dr. Daniel Tompkins is talking about growing plant-based plastic. So imagine that you harness part of that plastic for your food source. Part of that is to manufacture your next habitat. If there is a way that we could, you know, figure out how to 3D print the food, the pizza company, I'm sad to say, I can't remember it, but they could do it. Like NASA has one. I've seen that down at the Huntsville Marshall Space Flight Center, and they can basically make a pizza. They kind of layer the crust, they put on the sauce, they kind of manufacture the pepperoni, and in about 90 seconds, you've got a pizza. So I think... Every time I've ever heard an astronaut speak, they love everything spicy because the effects yes. of hypergravity, things yes. tend to stuff them up. So we may all really love habanero peppers when we get to Mars, <laughs> or like that, which right? which would be very surprising for me because I'm not a spicy person. <laughs> but so, if there's pizza involved,
1: I'm in, like I love pizza. I'm I in.
2: It's so crazy. But again, think about just the different things when you're talking about this psychology, Jeff is that it's going to take two hours to get ready to, you know, go outside. With <laughs> and, you know what I mean? It's not going to be anything easy to take that, like, come on, let's go for a walk. But when we get outside, it's not going to be a blue sky like no, you humans 1.0 have known. It's going to be yellow and the sunsets are going to look blue and not with all of those beautiful kind of like this palette of color that we get here. But we right. do know that, that we can source oxygen and water from the MOXIE instrument that's been on Perseverance. So we not only have like oxygen for astronauts, you know, and kind of like a life source, but also a fuel source. So I I have every confidence that the people who are thinking about the architecture and, you know, the ways that we might live and with the ways we might put greenhouses and, you know, even now on the International Space Station, they're growing mung beans and other things. Yes. On cotton pads, not with yep. dirt, but again, you know, they've also just kind of finally planted something in that lunar soil and stuff grew. So my hope is, is that life will seek life no matter where we are on Earth, the moon or Mars.
0: Yes. So we've jumped into a lot of stuff about living to Mars already. <laughs> I know. It's like, see, how many times I've given a speech now? <laughs> uh, but... I want to sort of back us up just a little bit on us getting to Mars. We see lots of, like right now, your background. So, folks be able to see that on our page or on our social. We see lots of artist renditions of what it's going to look like. Are we going to have those dome structures? Are they going to, you already mentioned we will probably have research facilities out on the surface, but habitats either in the mountain or in those caves how much equipment is going to go first Uh. with how many people versus, you know, is it going to be equipment, equipment, equipment with robotic carriers to get it out of the rockets first? Or is it going to be equipment and people, equipment and people, equipment and people? What do you think about that? Oh, that is such a great
2: question. And I've heard debates for both sides of that. Ah. I think that you have to think about If we can create those robots that can literally go there and start kind of like manufacturing like Martian bricks, right? Martian concrete, you know what I mean? Stack those up or build those up in some way. Or are the things that exist on the surface inflatables, like the Bigelow systems and stuff like that? And then are the first missions more like the Apollo missions? We go there, the astronauts spend, you know, 10 to 30 days and then there's a return mission and then you begin to build on that i think the big issue is that this isn't just one country it's multiple countries yes and so determining like i mean the curious thing is though and kids this is where decide to be in aerospace and aviation now in the next one to two (laughs) decades the space industry the space economy is estimated and projected to be a one to two trillion dollar. Wow. So it's like you're going to see your first trillionaires because they're going to start figuring out how you get those Peterbilt's and the John Deere's right there that are going to be autonomous. Right. You're going to see how to grade and kind of like burrow and go into these places. So I think it's going to have to be like a combination of efforts with going, which is most important for us to get there to prove that humans can get there safely, right. that sure. we can land here. I mean, do we want to invest all of this infrastructure only to finally get humans there and go? I hate Mars.
0: I'm <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like that's, it I this. It took me place. forever to get here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what that's, I thought it was going to be. Traffic was outrageous.
2: <laughs> So I don't know, like there's one part of me that goes, yeah, it's like, I'm nearly more in favor of let's go and get human boot prints on the planet and really suss out like, is this something that humans can do long term? You know, again, who knows, but that it's like, I even had one company that I heard of out of France kind of encourage that anybody going to Mars would have to have a pacemaker because think oh. about it, you lose muscle mass, right? Yes. In yes. microgravity. And yes. which is a, your heart's a muscle. So yep. imagine that you, all of a sudden, I don't know, your rover, something's going somewhere and you've got to like suss up enough, like, you know, power to like motor and run across Mars and then your heart gives out. And so that's a hard way to think too. I mean, when you're thinking very science fiction-like, will we have to have certain mechanical apparatuses within us that would withstand the effects yeah. of long-term microgravity? So I think the truth is we've got spacecraft that can get things to Mars. That's not the hard part. The hard part is coming through that very thin atmosphere, unlike Earth's, who tends to slow. I mean, we just saw that beautiful splashdown the other day. Yeah. to slow that re-entry down. But you're going to be coming in hot on Mars, (laughs) you know, and hoping everything deploys and hoping you settle down very softly. We've seen it done with, you know, what a two-ton, couple of thousand pound, like, you know, rover Right. You do that. If that's carrying, say, enough medicine and for adults. And I was going to say, right. The most fragile
1: cargo would probably be the human beings on that, you know, because we have to have certain things to stay alive. And and I know what you're talking about, because for my book, Space Care, I it's all about space medicine. And that's what I learned is even that your heart can change shape and become more like a ball if you stayed in microgravity for a very long time. So that's why I think it's important that we go to the moon first. I realize that the atmospheres are different, but we can learn more and it's closer. So, you know, it's not a commitment of six to nine months to get there. And I think we're going to learn tons from having a base there and being able to go back and forth. We're also going to learn how... I mean, the one thing that I think about is like, what do you see? I mean, are we going to have to have like an ISS type thing floating around Mars, and then send, you know, kind of do what they're planning at the Moon? Is we're going to send a human landing system, and that's a well, lot. You know, of stuff. it's like I've
2: heard, I've heard everything. Like, you know, if you've looked at Buzz Aldrin's kind of like cycler plan, it's like there's either you do a Mars space station that people right. you're there, and you go down and then you come back up or are you living on phobos or Deimos? they're not that far away they're, ah. pretty, they're kind of much safer targets and if we've learned how to live on our moon might it not be better because you're you don't have there go You don't have some of that stuff that you're going to experience on Mars. You're still so you just visit, you just hop over there. You just kind of like go, oh (laughs) just kind of kind of like we're going to Mars for the day. We'll be back. I mean, because it's like, you know, the dust storms and those kinds of things don't exist necessarily on those moons so ah. you know, so again you start to go what is that best thing and you know you've got your you kind of like your committed ones like i'm going there and I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll live out my end of my time there on mars so i think it's going to be interesting but you know even it's like they've named you know as they're taking these samples you know perseverance is right these core samples that it will come back with the after the twenty twenty six rover lands and they're naming them cool things like Bear Wallow and all these great <laughs> things, but again, imagine us holding those samples in our hands. What are we going to discover? We're going to go, wow, oh my golly! There's stuff in here that no human should ever get near. We're going to discover, like, oh my gosh, why didn't life thrive? And right. I think it's going to be a beautiful thing, mainly because and maybe this is where I get a little altruistic, but it feels like space always feels like exciting no matter where you are on the yes. planet. It sort of like helps boundaries and geopolitical stuff kind of melt away where you're going, that's so cool, right? Yes. And so that's what I keep thinking. Maybe that's why I get excited about Mars. We can't go as just one country. It's got to be an international thing. So to think about four to six people from all parts of the world having a shared first time ever experience stepping out on the red planet for the good of all of humanity back on earth. I wonder if that will solve any ills. You know, I've heard, and I'm sure you guys have heard- It would be nice. It would be nice. And, you know, astronaut Nicole Stott has a beautiful thing that she always says to the kids anytime I have her speak to my Janet's Planet kiddos. You know, she says- what she learned in space is that you can't be a good crewmate up there if you can't be a good crewmate down here on mm. planet Earth. And so yep. I have hopes when I talk to kids and that'd be curious what, you know, of all the stuff you guys have done with kids. What do kids think about going to Mars or
0: from your perspective of where do you heard? <laughs> <laughs> Janet, you just you totally just stole my question. <laughs> I was literally just going to ask you, all right, Janet, here's the deal. You're okay. creator and CEO of Janet's Planet, and I know the kinds of shows that you put on, and I know how many kids you see a year, and you you just spent the last handful of years running quite literally the Humans to Mars Summit, yep. uh, an entire three and four day summit all about sending humans to Mars. What do you hear from younger people? Because you are engaging with so many yes. of them specifically on this. Is it the rockets? Is it the landing? Is it the growing the food? What do you hear from them about Mars?
2: The biggest thing, and it's profound, they'll say, please don't make Mars another Earth. Oh, okay. They're like, I mean, people, like I've heard kids say, like, we should absolutely go. But if we do, we should not behave anymore like we do here. And then I actually heard a kid, it was like funny, Maggie was at the Human to Mars Summit. This was back when we, were the, the first year we were back, I guess, in 2022 after COVID. And so there was this end where Matt Kaplan, like we do a why Mars or how right. and I think this year's question or that year's question was like, how will going to Mars, will it change us? Will it make us better, et cetera? And she flat out said, Nope. She goes, not now this is sweet. And I did not pay her to say this, but it was, it was here, she's like, well, she goes, no, it won't change us. She goes, but it could be better if Janet's in charge. <laughs> and I was like, there, there you, you go. go. First vote like, president
0: of Mars. <laughs> I was like, kiddo,
2: you can have all my jewels. Here you go. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. College tuition but- taken care of.
2: Well, we could talk
0: forever <laughs> know, to you about <laughs>
1: Mars. This has been so much fun, but I'm very curious. What is your challenge for our listeners, Janet?
2: Mm. Oh, I've got a good one. My question and challenge all of you is to think about what would be your first words on Mars. Neil Armstrong said, As he stepped off that ladder onto the lunar regolith, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah. When we talk to kids today, we sort of encourage, do you think they'd say mankind? We knew what they meant, but we might say humankind or humanity. But my challenge is, and I want to know, I want to know from you, what would be your first words on Mars? Oh, I I like that. that.
1: I I like that one. I'm gonna have to think about that one because, you know, I mean, Neil Armstrong's words, of course, are wildly famous. Everybody knows them. So no pressure, kids, no pressure with that.
2: (laughs) But let me just encourage you. We did this this summer. We actually did an activity where we took some concrete and some iron oxide and made footprints and kind of like garden templates. So it could be like, you know, a footprint in the garden, but it looked like you stepped on Mars. Nice. And along with that, we had our background and we had kids think about what that would be. Now, some of the funnier ones were like, they would step on to, <laughs> step on to sit as it were in front of the Mars background and say, Hey, Fred, didn't expect to see you here. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, another one, what came on is that kids eat your veggies. There you um, go. But a few had some very like moving, profound things wow. to say. So I know you have it in you and I can't wait to read or hear what you're going to say. That would be great. Okay. Excellent. So yes, everybody That's send terrific. that to us. We would love
1: to see that. So Janet, it has been so much Fun having yes. you on our show.
0: Yes, Thank yes. you for
2: being on Solvent for Kids.
0: Thank you, Janet.
2: Thank you so much. And kids, as you heard, I love to talk and I love facts. And I love, <laughs> I'm so super curious, even at my 29.4 years old that I am on <laughs> I'm older on Earth, but I like counting it in Martian years. But that is the one thing that I would just say to everybody out there is like, stay curious, stay kind of like with that childlike curiosity and you never know what you're going to learn or what you might create. So I can't wait to see what you will surely do, everybody. Absolutely. Thank you, Janet. Bye, guys. Keep looking up. Keep looking at Mars.
0: I really thought we were going to end up talking to Janet for hours and have the longest Solvent episode ever. And we could continue talking about what it's going to be like to live on Mars. And Janet has such a unique perspective on that. So much fun. And with that unique perspective, she obviously has a fantastic challenge for all of our listeners. What do you think of this one, Jen?
1: Oh, I love this one. What would you say
0: is your first word on
1: Mars? I mean, I'd have to think about that. You know, you could go serious, right? Or you could be like, hey, I'm here, right? Like, I'm curious to hear what our listeners are thinking about for that, including ask your parents, right? Because your parents might have different ideas about that. If you come up with a really cool saying, we want to know about it. Yes. So be sure to tag us on our social media. We are at Kids Solve at Facebook, X, and Instagram. And you can always check us out on our website, SolveItForKids.com where we have episode pages for every single one of our guests. And you can learn more about Janet and all of the amazing things she does. And we'll probably even have some resources so you can read more about what it's like to live on Mars.
0: Yes, and especially for our younger listeners, it's going to be your generation that is going to Mars and are going to be living where there are humans on two different planets.
2: Absolutely.
0: until then, (laughs) Jen and I will be working on what our first words on Mars would be. You'll hear Jen and Jeff from Earth on... Solve it for for kids. kids!